Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Skewed and Reviewed Skewedcast. I'm Gareth, creator of Skewed and Reviewed. You can catch us online at sknr.net, where we cover all things from movies, games, television, pop culture, travel, entertainment, and more. You can also catch us online at Pinal, P I N A L Central.com, keyword Skewed, where you can see our gaming reviews for a network of 20 newspapers and um, 12 newspapers in 20 markets. And we've just recently put up a couple for Back for Blood and uh, Far Cry 6, so a lot of uh, great stuff there. You can catch me each week on BJ Shea's Geek Nation on KSWFM. We have the simulcast on our page. The next episode will be up Friday morning. And, of course, we have Skewed and Reviewed the magazine. And we're working on the new issue with the Holiday Gift Guide now. And, of course, uh, we're syndicated. Our good friends at Sci-Fi Radio uh, run us twice a day on Fridays. So uh, thank you very much. We look forward to uh, getting more content out to you soon. Now, uh, thankfully, we have somewhat of a normal schedule, and we were able to get Michael and Justin and I all back, all in the same place at the same time, where travel, screening engagements, and other events uh, weren't contradicting. And we have a lot of stuff to cover, so let's get right to it. Justin, you wanted to talk about a look at Elden Ring, so uh, tell us what you thought and what's going on. Yeah, so there was a little bit of a surprise um, event today where they showed off about 15 to 20 minutes of gameplay from uh, the you know the upcoming uh, video game Elden Ring. Uh, it's from From Software, uh, famous for Dark Souls and uh, Sekiro's Shadows Die Twice. Um, it's just kind of surprising because it was a little bit random. Um, this was the kind of demo that you would kind of expect at um, you know, maybe uh, a Sony event that happened maybe a few weeks ago or, uh, or at a convention, but, uh, it was kind of like its own thing. They just kind of, you know, this morning they're like, Hey, we're showing off Elden Ring. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've played other from software games that, you know, mechanically looks very much the same, um, you know, same kind of, uh, gameplay styles, Dark Souls, but, there's some kind of notable new features. So, we, I mean, we all knew it was going to be open world, so much more open world than Dark Souls, which sort of more has a Metroid-style uh, structure uh, of kind of like interconnected zones and stuff like that. But this is definitely very open world. that You can essentially summon a horse at will um, and, and ride along, and there's NPCs kind of just walking about and kind of minding their own business. Some will attack you, some, will, some won't. Um looks like it has a very kind of interesting kind of fantasy world kind of like dark souls uh but it looks really good you know i, I it looks uh kind of like they're a little branching a little bit out of their comfort zone it really reminded me of um you know because bloodborne and, and dark souls and even sekiro to to a large degree all have a very similar kind of larger structure uh but this looks kind of like they're they are kind of taking the structure of a of a very open world kind of game that is very popular, uh, you know, Breath of the Wild or Skyrim or, um, you know, take your pick. And they're kind of applying what they're really good at to that kind of framework. So it looks, it looks very good, very interesting. I mean, same thing kind of that you would expect. You can go through dungeons, um, play it co-op. Um, there's a summoning feature where you can essentially capture enemies as you defeat them as i understand it and summon their spirits uh to help you um with battles you know these games often have a reputation for being very difficult 
So um, it looks like they're going to give you some more tools to kind of uh, help you with that. So I'm, I'm actually, this is one of the ones I'm actually really, really looking forward to. Um, I was never able to get through Dark Souls. I, I do intend to go back and try it again. Um, but I love Sekiro. Uh, that was my favorite game from that year, whatever year it came out, um, a few years ago. Uh, it, it had a reputation for being very difficult, but uh, I got through it and I loved it. So I am uh, definitely looking forward to this one. Man, Michael, do you have any comments on it? And so I haven't, I haven't actually seen the uh, the trailer yet. Although I will go and take a look at it. One thing I will comment on is what Justin said: is um, Sekiro was actually a dark, quote unquote, Dark Souls game that I could actually get get through and kill bosses with. Um, Dark Souls, I've gone back to it two or three times, and every time I think I'm going to figure it out and, and, and have some luck at it, every time I give up fairly fairly quickly. As, but at the same time, I keep getting drawn back into these, and Elden Ring, from what I've seen, um, just some of the screenshots and, and not actually going through the, the trailer, I'm excited for it too. And Dark Souls has a way of suckering me back in every time. Um, so I, I'm hoping it's a little bit more accessible as far as my skills are concerned. The way Sekiro was, Sekiro I was initially concerned about because, again, being you know from software, I always appreciate the world building they do. I could always appreciate the difficulty that they have, but I was also you know concerned that I would have the same kind of luck with that game as I did with the Dark Souls, uh, even Demon Souls type games. Um, and luckily, I was able, for whatever reason, to grasp that a little bit better. Um, I even had the same problem with Bloodborne. I got into Bloodborne thinking that I would have a little bit better luck with it, and I didn't. Um, so, it, you know, again, every time one of these games is announced, it makes me want to go back and, and think that now that I'm older and more mature and I've had more experience with games, that it'll somehow um, click with me, uh, and maybe it will, I don't know. But at the same time, I, I from what I see, it looks it looks pretty interesting, and I'm still pretty excited about it. Um, so I'll uh, check out the trailer and, and give you guys my thoughts on it once I get a chance to do that. Yeah, the big thing about those type of games is that they're designed to basically frustrate you. I read somewhere about how few people actually complete the games, and most people rage quit and uh, delete it. I, I still remember uh, Bloodborne and playing it after seeing it at PAX West, after going to the Sony booth, talking with them about it, playing it there. And then I remember I got the game, started playing it, and I couldn't believe like how early in the game you were already facing frustrating challenges and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, you know, there, there's no curve to hone your skills and stuff like that before you're literally thrown to the sink or swim part. What so, I will say about Sekiro, and I really hope that they kind of took le lessons from that into Elden Ring, is that Sekiro gave you, and I think what is what made it different than Dark Souls. So Dark Souls, my experience with it, the couple of times that I tried, was you kind of go through it, and you're kind of getting into the world building, kind of like what Michael's saying, and then you encounter, like, a particular enemy, and there's just nothing you can do. Like, you, you're, it's going to force you to learn the mechanics um, and master them before you can proceed. But one thing that Sekiro did that was different was that it gave you tools that were pretty overpowered, um, particular, particularly the, uh, the grappling hook. So the grappling hook gave you more mobility than any other enemy in the game so you could you know if you were in a bad situation you could just grapple away at least that was the way i sort of played it was like if i was overwhelmed i would just grapple away and then you could kind of get your distance and like kind of reassess the situation so i i really kind of hope they kind of take that 
approach uh, and give you something so that you always feel like you can uh, at least do something that none of the other enemies can do. That's a really interesting take on it, too, and that will be very interesting to see. Another point that'll be really interesting to see is that apparently Disney is ramping up uh, plans for more live-action adaptation of classic films. This morning I heard that uh, Bambi was actually being considered, and I can't wait to see how they do this one. Uh, but the news has been going around that Gal Gadot of Wonder Woman fame is uh, being approached to play the evil queen in a live-action version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the classic animated film that essentially started the Disney uh, film empire in that this was the first full-length animated film. A lot of people said, uh, you know, it was going to be, uh, you couldn't do it. it. People wouldn't sit through a full-length animated film. Disney sank almost everything he had into uh, making it happen, and a lot of people said that it failed. It might have really dragged the company down, but it didn't, and we know the alternative uh, path that happened. So, Michael, real quick, what do you think? Good idea? I think so. Bad I idea. mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that we've, we've um, come to Snow White. It, it kind of surprised me that it's taken as long as it has because i would think from a live action perspective perspective that's probably one of the easier ones to do um only because it doesn't have as not as i guess they still have you know the smaller animals that they can um, cgi in and that sort of thing but i would think from a story perspective that one's a pretty much uh, an easier one to uh to do for the live action side so no i'm not surprised at all i think gal Gadot's a, a great choice she's always um plays strong female characters which with Snow White, uh, particularly the evil stepmother, um, or the you know there's always the the, str the strong female characters that that Disney kind of comes forth with. So I think it's a really good idea. Bambi, on the other hand, would be interesting. I think that would really traumatize a lot of kids, uh, yeah, probably no more kidding. so than the cartoon did. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I think it's it, it's not surprising um, that this is kind of their next choice. So it'll be interesting to see you know the take on it since they always kind of modernize these a bit and, and make them a little bit more um, palatable for the time time frame. So I think it'll be a really interesting take to see how they, where they go with it. Oh, exactly. And the funny thing is my wife had said, isn't Gal Gadot too attractive to play this character? And I said, you could say that, but let's look at what Disney has done. Kate Blanchett played the stepmother in Cinderella. Angelina Jolie played Maleficent. They certainly are not afraid to take attractive, glamorous people and put them in roles that are traditionally uh, villains. And so, you know, it'll be interesting. I think she could pull it off. And besides, you know, I, I could see her also the appeal of, of saying, I want to play against type for once. You know, I've been a hero for so long. It might be nice to play the bad guy um, and see how that goes. And of course, as we know, if you you know once you get in good with Disney, that could lead to so many roles down the uh, pipe for you, especially with all the studios they control. So it's a pretty good Disney. Well, I mean, and if you think about it, you know, she's always the mirror is always saying she's the most fairest of all. So one right. would assume that you would need a, a quote unquote attractive person to play that role, right? Exactly. Exactly, and that that ought to be really fun too to see how that plays out. I know. I've already started thinking about D23 and all of that down the line, 
and I remember when uh, Angelina Jolie came out for the segment on Maleficent, and she joked about how um, one of her co-workers brought her children to the set that day, and she was in her full regalia, and uh, they had met Angelina many times, but they had no idea who she was. When she said she came out with the headpiece on and all of that, uh, the girl was hiding behind her mom and said, make that witch go away. And she said that's when she knew this is really going to work because this little girl's known me forever, and she had no idea who it was. And so you know, that, that was an interesting take. And it'll, it'll be fun to see how they uh, uh, play that down the line. Now, another thing I wanted to talk about briefly, uh, because it does play into Disney and it does play into um, the future of Hollywood somewhat, I don't want to go into too many details of the situation behind it, but we've all heard about the tragic shooting uh, that it happened on the set of Rust, where a, uh, a lot of speculation as to whether it was a real gun with a real round in it, if it was a prop gun that somehow fired a real bullet, but someone was killed on a film set, someone was injured. There's been a lot of uh, investigation, speculation on this. Some people are saying things are not being as transparent as they should. We'll let the process play out. But this morning, uh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, came out and said that he will no longer have um, prop guns on set. They will only use rubber guns. And that essentially post-production is where things like muzzle flash and um, you know traditional live fire effects will be added in. And so I know, Justin, you and I talked about it a little bit uh, before we started going. So, Michael, let's have you start us off in a fresh perspective. What do you make of this? Uh, so I guess you can make there's there's two bits, I think, to draw into this. And I don't want to I don't want to take away from the tragedy or, or say it's it's not important, because I think all of those things um, are worth consideration. Uh, so, I mean, for one thing, these days, you know, there's a lot of amazing things that we can be done post-production, right? So the ability to add realistic um, gun effects uh, to, a, to a movie uh, after the, the effect, obviously from a safety perspective, makes a lot of sense. Uh, at the same time, I think, um, I, I don't want to say it's going too far because I don't necessarily think that's necessarily a fair thing to say either. Uh, but I, I think it does kind of uh, make everybody more mindful that they need to be, there needs to be a lot more safety involved when they're doing these types of things. And I mean, this isn't just for guns, this is for, you know, anything else, any props that they're using, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it, I think it's great if the company has the ability, the money, um, and, and the, and the, you know, time to do all this in post-production, they feel they can get the same quality and, and same authenticity, authenticity by doing that. But at the same time, I just, I think it, it, it just goes to show that we need to be more cautious when, you know, on set and doing these types of things. So, so I'm a bit torn. I think, again, I think if it's a possibility to do that well and to be safe, and that's the safest method by all means, they should do that. But at the same time, I, I think it shouldn't take away from the fact that there are other potential hazards when they're doing these types of things. And it really kind of goes into how do you make that safer for everybody? And, and what are the things we need to do to, to kind of make the overall environment a safer environment? Yeah, I think there's definitely some good points there, and I'm going to get your take in a moment, Justin. My, my thing is, 
I look at it as a um, a cost situation. Uh, so you know, you look at Dwayne's films. Now, obviously, we know about his um, situation with the Fast and Furious franchise, but he has said that he would do the Hobbs and Shaw spinoffs and that sort of thing. So you have Universal Studios. We know that he's done a lot of stuff with Disney. You know that we know that he has plans for more Jungle Cruise films. Disney's got the resources. Universal has the resources to CGI these effects in. The big thing that I'm wondering about is what happens with the smaller independent art films. I mean, obviously, this is a personal choice. This is not a studio mandate. But you have to wonder how long this, uh, until this catches on. And that's the situation. So you'll have some poor person uh, trying to do a $500,000 indie film or whatever who can't afford to CGI a key gunfight scene for his film. And then we're right back to square one where, well, gee, uh, you know, we have to ensure that these situations don't happen. And I've seen people write in all these solutions. Someone said, well, they need to just take the firing pins out of this and they need to do this. So they re need to redesign these things. So there's no way they can handle live rounds. And it's like, ah, uh, no easy answer. Justin, wrap this uh, topic up for us, please. Yeah. So it, obviously it's a very difficult subject. Um, and, you know, I agree with both of you, you know, um, it's obviously a horrible tragedy, um, and it, it definitely should not have happened. Um, but everything, everything, every action you do has, has trade-offs, like if, if you make any sort of change. So, um, yes, it's certainly, certainly, if you have only rubber um, props, it, it's certainly going to be safer. Um, but it comes with trade-offs. Like you said, like, I think both those points are, are really good that one, you have a cost problem that, you know, Dwayne Johnson might be able to do this, but not everybody else will be able to. Um, but also there, there's another thing too, that, um, you know, CGI has gotten very, very, very good, but you can still, you can still tell the difference, um, that the vast majority of the time, uh, there are very, there's, it's very rare that you cannot tell at all that uh, uh, that an effect is uh, not CGI or not. Um, so I think there there would be a trade off there. Um, I think certainly they could definitely get close. And I you know I think people should be maybe open to this to the discussion that maybe um, if the quality of effects goes down, maybe that is worth it for for safety purposes. However, the other thing too, at least about this particular situation is that there are already very good safety standards and protocols in place um obviously the investigation is still going on and um, we should let that play out before we make any um uh, opine on it too much but it looks like right now uh, multiple there is a multiple uh levels of failure uh of of those safety protocols and i'm a big you know believer that you know you should have standards and if those standards aren't followed then there should be uh consequences and that that's really kind of the step we're at now i think the way that this um this is playing out is the way that it should play out where um if a horrible tragedy like this happens do an investigation find out you know if there was some kind of uh um 
failure uh, uh, where someone is, is culpable or uh, like has some sort of responsibility that was failed and they should be held responsible for that. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now. Uh, I don't necessarily think we're at the stage where this requires like a wholesale change in the industry. Um, you know, if it becomes a pattern, then certainly it, it does. But, uh, you know, the, I guess the one the one thing is that it is, it is exceedingly rare that something like this happens. And um, so it, it does show that uh, the protocols, I think, do work. It's just they failed in this particular um, uh, on this particular set very tragically. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the point that I agree with, too, is if this was if this and I don't want to say if this becomes a trend, they need to do something, obviously investigate what happened. Um, if it happened because they you had somebody who was not following protocols, then that that just means that you need to reinforce those protocols. You know, I understand you have, you know, two people that are supposed to check the gun. Maybe you put a third person in, in place if you're really concerned about it. Or if you're in if you're in a type of movie that has a lot of guns, uh, you know, I think of like a John Wick or something like that, where there's a lot of potential for failure to occur. And maybe you tighten those things down. I, I, but I'm also one that I don't think, you know, you you jump to make changes because of a, a tragic accident that occurs, and all of a sudden everything you've been doing for the past, you know, 30, 40, 60, 100 years isn't valid anymore. And yes, you know, we talk about um, there are other actors who obviously who have famously died because of this. Um, this isn't the first time this has happened. But if you think about all the movies that have been made over the the past hundred plus years and, and you take that into account maybe it's it's less of a big concern to jump at right now and maybe it's more about you know enforcing the rules on set and ensuring um, people are following those rules and if they're not you know taking care of this you know taking care of it at, at that level again I understand death is involved I understand that it's it's a tragedy I don't, I don't want to say that our movie going experience is more important than somebody's life but at the same time I, I think we need to instead of jumping you know to make changes we need to understand why they occurred and see what what other options there are and, and how to prevent it absolutely now moving on to another topic that dropped this week and this one was a bit of a surprise because uh with disney day coming up on the 12th for disney plus a lot of people expected to see something then, not now, but we got our first look at the Book of Boba Fett, which is ready to drop on Disney Plus starting uh, first episode, December 29th. Justin, what did you think? So, um, to the trailer itself, uh, I thought it was like just an okay trailer, like just as a trailer uh, on its own. Like it was, a, it was an okay trailer, but uh, I am still very excited, um, if nothing else, just because I really like the actor that they have playing Boba Fett, um, who's uh, he's played Boba Fett for a very very long time. Uh, I really liked him in The Mandalorian, and um, you know I'm I'm very eager to see um, what they kind of do with him and the story. Um, so you know I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. And Michael, your take, please. So this is going to be obscure, but in the very beginning of that trailer, that big spider thing that they show in the beginning uh, the for monk. those who don't know that's bomar monk um a very 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 uh, <laughs> uh side character who was in return of the jedi uh, uh, the reason that struck with me in the very beginning he was also probably the last mail away star wars figure that i got and i think that was probably in 
1998, somewhere around there. Oh, wow. Uh, but anyways, that's when I saw him, I got excited uh, just because it, it it's always funny to kind of see these cameos that they show that people are like, oh, that's a scary spider thing, and they don't put the, the lore uh, with Jabba's palace and, and some of the other uh, other things. So if you go back and return the Jedi, you'll see him in, in the back of uh, um, Jabba's, pal Jabba's palace, and the fact that they brought him in for that cameo, I, I just thought was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm excited. I, I thought it looked really good. Uh, you know, obviously, I, the, the, we've already seen that with The Mandalorian, the quality and the amount of money they're willing to put into these episodes to make them, you know, legitimate Star Wars movies each time is um, is exceptional. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it overall. What I found really interesting was, number one, the scene where he was sitting around the table with the Trandoshans and the other aliens, how they were clearly people in costumes and they weren't going CGI, which has caused a lot of people to say there could be some really interesting cameos coming up down the line from all of this. And um, the other thing to keep an eye on is the just the creativity of it going back to Tatooine and are we going to get to see so much more and it, it, I always find it so funny that for a place that was essentially described as this back end backwater place in the in their galaxy it's funny how many events have been pivotal around that planet so it's, it's an interesting thing and it, it's funny also that you mentioned the mail away characters and for those who don't remember, there was a time when you bought your figures, you would clip out the proof of purchase, and you would send, I think it was five of them, you could send them in, they would have various offers where they would, you would see a sticker on the uh, figures, and they would allow you to send in five proof of purchases by a certain date, and they would send you a figure that had not been released to the public. And I remember the very first one was the Boba Fett figure. And for those of you that uh, may or may not know, this is where they advertised it with the firing rocket pack. And uh, so few of those were made, I think less than five. And, uh, you know, it would take about eight weeks, eight to ten weeks to get them. And then the second one I got was Bosk. So I remember that, you know, you waited forever, you'd come home from school. Is there any mail? Is there any mail? No. And then it came in this little white cardboard tube about the size of a uh, travel-sized toothpaste. And you opened it up, and there it was in a plastic bag. And that was like the greatest thing in the world to be able to get a Star Wars figure in the mail for free, especially one that wasn't in the store yet. So that was, yeah, happy times, happy times indeed, fond childhood memories. So moving on, let's talk about the next big thing coming out from Marvel Studios this weekend. Uh, we get the Eternals, and uh, the word is that uh, despite some people claiming to be indifferent about it, uh, they're expecting a $75 million domestic opening for it. And so, um, Justin, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, at least in COVID times... Um... 75 million is uh pretty darn good um i haven't i'll be completely honest i haven't followed the um the COVID box office for every movie very very closely but uh based on what i have seen uh 75 million would be would be pretty good for uh you know 
for the conditions that the theaters are in right now. And Michael, you have seen the film, and I know the embargo is lifted since you did the uh, screening for us. Um, what do you think? Is $75 million on point, or do you think it's low for this type of film? So a couple of points. I'm not. This will be spoiler free, so don't worry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give anything away. Our review is up on sknr.net. Um, a couple of things about Eternals. One, I will say it was it was one of the Marvel movies when it was announced, and even going to the theater yesterday was not something that I was overly excited about. I, I didn't have any connection to the characters. You know, obviously it's a Marvel movie. I was excited to see it, but it wasn't. It didn't top my list of of movies that I thought were going to blow me away and 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 you know for those who've gone out and looked at the reviews and, and you know gone to Rotten Tomatoes that kind of thing it, there seems to be kind of a, a, a either you like it or hate it kind of mentality it's sitting well, like there was a lot of review bombing too that yeah just up there hating on it without even seeing the film yeah and it certainly doesn't deserve that I mean uh, my wife who had zero interest but was going with me anyways loved it um, and, and it was a movie that you know it felt like a Marvel movie uh, action-packed um, it's a spectacle I mean the, the cinematography is outstanding you know it's a movie that covers roughly 7,000 years total um, it's and it's it's it was a fun Marvel movie so so I think that's a realistic um, expectation honestly it might even do better than that I, I do worry a little bit because of the you know I, I talked to people who were excited about seeing it and then they're seeing the, the more negative reviews um, and they're like, oh, maybe I should wait or, or something. But, but I, but for me personally, being somebody who wasn't all that excited about the characters, wasn't all that excited about the movie as a whole, and, and being able to enjoy it as much as I did, I, I certainly think that would be a, a disservice to uh, folks who are Marvel fans or who are just big, you know, blockbuster movie type fans to kind of miss out on it. I mean, it definitely had a feel of a summer blockbuster to it. Um, but it, but again, it's 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 witty, it's fun, it's it's a comic book movie, it's it's action packed. The the stars I think did an amazing job. The cast I think was well done. Um, you know, and, and, and again, maybe the type those characters won't appeal to everybody, but I think there's enough in it with enough variety that it'll appeal to to those who are are fans of that type of movie one way or the other. Um, so no, I think I think it's important, uh, you know, to see how the, the movies do with you know COVID. And if it can pull that, then I think that'll be a good sign for the industry as a whole as to what to expect, you know, going forward. Okay, so for uh, trying to put you on the spot here without doing spoilers, there has been talk that obviously uh, from Marvel that do not expect a sequel to the Eternals per se, because it was not necessarily something that they're planning on several Eternals films, but yet, characters slash the film definitely fit in and expand upon the Marvel Universe. So without giving any details, would you say that's a fair argument, Michael, that it does indeed connect the past with where you, we all think they might be going? Yeah, so what I will say is there is a ton of reference in the movie to the other Marvel movies, specifically um, Endgame and the events that occurred in Endgame. So it doesn't it doesn't do like a lot of, I, I wouldn't say a lot of this, Marvel movies do. I mean, usually they'll kind of mention it. Oh, remember the snap or something like that. It'll be kind of like a, a side conversation. This ties a lot of what occurred in previous movies together. And it, it answers a lot of questions, I think, that, that some folks might have. But I, but I do agree that it isn't something that I think needs a sequel. 
because again, it is a lot of characters. It's a lot of um, folks that are being introduced, and I think um, I think Marvel tend even outside of the Avengers, even those are kind of individual characters that are brought together for a film. I think this is a lot of characters, but they'll they'll take key um, aspects from this movie or maybe key uh, characters from this movie and probably and insert themselves. I think throughout the universe. Uh, so it's more, I, I call it more of like a seed type movie where they'll take the bits and pieces of the, of, the, of the individuals that they feel will fit into the other roles and kind of put them out into throughout the Marvel Universe. I, again, it's, I think of itself, it's, it's, it's such a big movie that covers so much that I, I don't necessarily know that it needs a sequel, uh, but, I, but I obviously would be interested to see how some of these other characters intertwine with the Marvel Universe throughout. Well, it definitely will be interesting to see how that plays out because we're going to be getting a healthy dose of Marvel. Let's not forget we're only a few weeks away from Spider-Man, and that is supposed to really flip the switch, kick off this multiverse thing. You know, we've had teases about it. We've had potential little incursions in it. Uh, obviously, WandaVision, that sort of thing, definitely uh, set the stage, so we will uh, have that to look forward to. And then, you know, not too far into the new year, we'll definitely be getting some stuff so uh, a couple more topics i wanted to talk about uh briefly blizzard has canceled uh their planned blizzcon online in february this is all, was followed a few days later by um overwatch 2 and diablo 4 being announced as not coming out in 2022 as originally expected um you know not entirely unexpected with all of the turmoil they have going there as they try to get their house in order but what was surprising about all of this is at the same time, uh, we got news that PacSouth is uh, basically stopped for the indefinite future, and many people uh, essentially say it, it's dead in the water. And uh, the reason given from uh, the folks behind it was that it just essentially it failed to grow. Uh, they said that you know, they were able to put on an online PAX East. They were able to uh, return PAX West uh, or PAX Prime uh, to a live show this year. Yes, it was considerably smaller. Yes, we talked about no major uh, people there. It was mostly indies. We talked about how it was essentially like PAX South, which was pretty much predominantly smaller indie companies. Uh, but, you know, was this a surprise? I mean, my first thought was I could see them saying, okay, you know, December's coming up, uh, and then we're going to be in January and February. Traditionally, when we have a, a PAX um, South, I know that they had wanted vaccine mandates for the Seattle show. I know with the political situation in Texas, there may have been simply, this is a fight that we don't want to have. Um, but pulling the plug versus uh delaying it so michael what do you think i i'm honestly not surprised i don't even know how much of this is completely driven by the pandemic i mean obviously that that played into um last year and this year and, and you know the year upcoming year uh, but I, I think pack south is one of those ones that a lot of I, I think it was probably very popular for those who lived in texas and probably um was, was a good show for a lot of local uh, folks to go to, but but to, to their point, I don't know that it drew in a lot of outside interest, kind of like the Seattle um, show does. And and again, I, I think it, it probably came down to a couple of things. Maybe 
um, they just couldn't afford to, to keep it on the books given the fact that they've had to cancel already um, for the most part twice you know last year and this year uh, and the other thing is I just I just don't know that it was driving the revenue or the interest and, and maybe there were some concerns that they just could for the foreseeable future at least for um, 2022 and maybe even 2023 and 2024 just what they would have to go through to, to make, make sure the show is safe and, and and deal with the pandemic and the politics around all of that um, in the location, I, I, I can't say that I'm surprised. I mean, one thing we they, they haven't said or, the, or that they could do, obviously, is revisit this, you know, five years down the road, see where things are. Maybe there's, a, you know, a renewed interest or maybe they'll see that there's a, a there's a big push for something like this and they can revisit it at that time. But I think it's it's one of those things where it's hard to continue to plan when all you're doing is canceling show after show and then you're just kind of like well you know where are we going to be and I, I think this kind of takes some of that speculation out and they can revisit it at a time when when things are safer to do so yeah i think that's definitely a really interesting point i i think it's also as we discussed we had people who were based in san antonio who would go and cover it and they had a nice time but they, even they had said you know, it, it, it's a lot of very casual, smaller studio games. These are not things that really light up the coverage meter. And I do wonder if, you know, at, at first you thought, oh, well, maybe that was what their whole goal was to be from the beginning. But the fact that you weren't seeing bigger studios wanting to take part in it several years in was definitely a concern. Uh, Justin, your take on that, please. No, I think that's completely right. You know, I, I think one of the problems, and I, I, I sort of, I don't want to say I foresaw this, but I thought I was concerned about PAC, PAC South when it was first announced. Um, it actually appealed to me, you know, I, I've been to PAX a couple times, PAX East, um, which, you know, I don't live on the East Coast, so it's quite, quite a bit, of, quite a while, like quite a ways to travel for it. So I was actually fairly excited about the prospect of PAX South when it was first announced, um, just because um, it would probably be the closest. I, 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 I'm assuming that here to uh, San Antonio is closer than here to Seattle. But, um, but uh, so I was excited about that. But the, the problem is even when I, and I, the last time I went to, to PAX East was many, many, many years ago. But even then, like, the difference between the first year and the second year was pretty drastic in terms of uh, how big the uh, reveals were, how exciting it was. And not to say I didn't have a good time the second year I went. I did have a very good time. But it was definitely geared less of, like, a, a big kind of news um, uh, event and more towards, like, you know, getting together with with people who have similar interests. So the, a lot of the panels were more subject based. Uh, there was a lot more focus on uh, indie, smaller indie titles, um, and uh, quite a bit more focus on kind of like tabletop gaming and things like that. Which is it, it's totally fine. But I, I think one of the things that started to make PAX very large was the expectation that it was going to be like a uh, a very mini E three, and I think. PAX West and East both, and I think it was mostly coincidental, actually filled that void a little bit because of timing. Um, I think a lot of companies saw the time in which these conventions were taking place, and they saw, or 
the opportunity to basically be like, oh, hey, you know, there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of excitement. There's going to be a lot of reporters there. And it's not near E3. Um, I have something to show. And we're going to capitalize on this. My concern always with PAX South was that, um, you know, you can get to the point where there's too many of those kinds of events going on. And uh, I don't ever remember PAX South ever having big news. And I think that's part of the problem is that there was expectations that it was going to be, um, you know, akin to the other PAXs. So I, I just, I don't think it ever really gathered um, enough steam to keep itself going. And uh, I think that that was, you know, couple that with the pandemic and everything that's going on. Um, if the uh, the guys at Penny Arcade were ever going to, to cut one of the events, I, I definitely think PAX South was the one that made sense. Yeah, it definitely is going to be an interesting and changing time out there. Final thing that we wanted to discuss today was that at long last, after its successful launch in theaters and HBO Max, Warner Brothers has finally got around to saying Dune Part 2 is going to happen. And uh, the directors even said there's still hope that Dune Messiah might get made. However, it's going to be a very quick turnaround because they haven't even started production yet and they're going to be putting it out in 2023. Just to wrap it up for us, what do you think? All right, so um, I loved Dune Part 1. I am a, a Dune might be my favorite yeah and that might be dune is my favorite novel so uh i was thrilled about this movie coming out i was it was number has has been number one most anticipated movie uh in my mind for since it was announced especially with uh the director um and i always butcher his name uh denev villanueve um any villanueve was how i i read it but um I've been a huge fan of his work for a long time, so um, you know, a couple of those two, two things together, uh, I was stoked, and it, it lived up to my expectations. I I couldn't be happier. Um, but you know, most of the criticism I see of it is that is really that it ends. So uh, it does end fairly abruptly, and you know, I think they made the right decision just because um, otherwise the movie would have been six hours long. I would have been fine with that, but. Um, most people probably wouldn't. So, uh, I was pretty, pretty nervous, um, mostly because the conditions were kind of right for the, for part two to fall apart. Um, mainly because there was all that fighting about the, uh, the release of the movie. Um, the director was very adamant that it, it needed to be a, a theatrical release and, uh, having seen it in IMAX, um, I, I am definitely on his side there. It was partly coupled with the fact I haven't been to the theaters since, you know, December of 2019. And this was the first movie experience I've had since then. Um, but seeing that movie in IMAX was uh, one of the most just vivid uh, experiences I've ever had in, in a theater. Um, so I, I'm definitely on his side there that it is a theatrical movie. Um, so there was kind of a perfect storm happening that that could have caused doom part two to fall apart um mainly because it was releasing simultaneously on hbo max and that could definitely eat into the uh um the numbers uh the box office numbers 
Uh, also couple with the fact that like numbers um, of cases are, are not doing great out there. So that also kind of it dis disincentivizes people from going to the theaters. But thankfully it did good enough um, that they quickly announced a part two and they are uh, they are actually making it, which I think is uh, I am I'm very relieved and extremely excited um, because it will complete his vision for for this adaption, which has been really good so far. And I really think that the the second part um, will complete this this story, and uh, um, it's it's really where most of the action happens anyway. So um, I I am beyond thrilled. Um, go, touching on Dune Messiah just briefly, um, he had mentioned that in uh, some interviews before that he kind of wanted to make this a trilogy and uh, cap this out with Dune Messiah. And I don't want to get into I mean it's a fifty plus year old book. Um, but I don't want to get into too many spoilers just in case people are kind of getting into this series now, uh, because of the movie, but, um, you know, Dune Messiah is not nearly as long, so I think they could definitely hammer it out in, um, in one movie, uh, also not nearly as much happens in it, so I, I think, you know, the structure makes sense to me to make this a trilogy and, and cap it out with Dune Messiah, um, however, the the one issue with Dune Messiah is that um, it's it's definitely a different kind of movie and it doesn't or a different kind of book, um, and it doesn't have nearly as much action uh, as uh, as the first novel. So it would be kind of difficult to film. There's a lot more political intrigue. There's a lot more like um, plotting and planning and and things like that. It, it it really seems more like a Game of Thrones kind of thing than. Uh, um, than like a Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. So it, it might not be quite as exciting and to kind of conclude a trilogy on that, I think that would be quite difficult. But um, if there's anybody that can do it, that, that he can. Yeah, that's uh, very, very interesting. And Michael, your final uh, take on that one for us. Yeah, so I mean, clearly, and again, no spoilers here for those who haven't seen it, but obviously I agree with Justin. I saw it in IMAX as well, and I honestly think that's the only way to see it. If you don't have an IMAX theater near you, you should definitely try to find the biggest screen you can find that's relative to IMAX and see it there because that is a movie that uh, it just does not have the same impact if you watch it on TV uh, at all. Um, and, and I'm not saying people should risk COVID to go get just to go see a movie, but I, but I think if you're in that situation where you feel safe to do so, you should absolutely do so. And clearly it was filmed with the intent of having at least the second half um, if not a trilogy, uh, you know, because I, I think a lot of people who who didn't know or, or weren't familiar with it or weren't familiar with the scope of the book, that they probably kind of felt a little cheated when they left. I mean, because it doesn't really, again, it doesn't end, you know, and I'm not going to go into to how, where, where it ends in, in part one, but it, it is it, to say it's a cliffhanger is, is kind of a... I think it's a misnomer, but it is a, it is something where it just kind of like, okay, what happens next, right? It, it doesn't have an ending, and I think it it definitely deserves that. And, and yeah, that's, I, and I'm glad they didn't try to push this all into a two-and-a-half, three-hour movie and make it the entire novel. I, I think that's where a lot of these um, larger uh, – I think a lot of these books that are turned into movies, they try to shove and cram too much in – and they just don't have the time to really flush it out. And I, and I think that with part one, 
they did an excellent job fleshing out the the political intrigue um and with the action and i and i do agree with justin that part two i think would be a lot more action focused so i think for those who are hoping for more action will be pleasantly surprised with the second part because uh, again that is where a lot of that occurs so so i'm again i'm, I'm glad they did that i i felt that they would have to i i mean unless it totally bombed I couldn't imagine that it wouldn't get get a, a treatment to a second part, but I'm glad that that's greenlit and that we'll see that coming because uh, I th certainly think it deserves it. As far as Messiah, I, I, I haven't read it. I, I'm not familiar with with it as as much as I am the, the you know Dune as a whole, the, the novelization as a whole. So I, I can't comment. But one thing I did note, um, I kind of like to compare Dune Part One to, to partially like Game of Thrones, right? It's kind of like say there's so much. Um, political intrigue and stuff going on that they could easily have made it into a uh, a Game of Thrones-esque type miniseries or show and, and fleshed it out even further and they would have had plenty of material to keep going. So even even in its its two and a half hour runtime, uh, I think they, they easily could have expanded on that more. Uh, again, it would have made it like a six hour movie plus. Um, but, but I think they did well with the time frame with the, the theatrical release. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm looking forward to it. I thought it was certainly one of the best movies of the year, um, uh, you know, for sci-fi lovers or for those who are familiar with the book, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm excited to see what the uh, sequel holds. You know, what's funny, too, is that they did a miniseries on sci-fi, which was essentially the first three books, and it did very well, but, I, you know, I looked at it and said, this is so much better than the 1980s version that tried to, I think, cover too much stuff in, in the time they had. But the difference is it didn't have the budget to do the visuals up. I thought with what they did, they did well. Uh, but, you know, one of the things for those who look back at the original David Lynch version, he added in things that were not in the book in order to make things a little more smooth with the narrative. And one of those is the whole idea behind the weirding modules, the sound-operated weapons that uh, the Atreides came up with that were such a threat to the Emperor. And David Lynch, I saw an interview years ago where he said, well, if you read the books, they talk about the Bene Gesserit martial arts, but I really didn't think we could pull off a bunch of people doing flips on sand dunes and really make it seem that menacing or impressive, so it was a lot easier just to say, well, here's this new weapon, which is basically a sonic weapon that uh, you know, fit into the narrative. And that, of course, like anything else, that throws people off because it wasn't in the book and it's not in the new version. So, you know, we'll see. It'll be very interesting to see where they go with this. And, folks, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next week, take care, and we'll talk to you soon.